Welcome to Careers in Discovery, your window into the world of leaders in pharma and biotech. Brought to you by Singular Talent, making hiring better for organizations involved in drug discovery and R&D. David Gillum is a true pioneer of the CAR-T cell therapy field. Now the Chief Scientific Officer of Celiad, David has seen T-cell-based technology grow from academic special interest to global concern, producing treatments for patients every day. Along with sharing his career journey, David talked to us about the early days of CAR-T research, the pros and cons of working in a completely novel field, and what a CSO does in a clinical stage biotech. Today, I'm with David Gillam of Celiad. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for the invite. Of course. Good to, be, good to have you. Um, David, we always start by talking a little bit about the work people are doing currently. So um, Celiad uh, is a CAR-T company um, doing some interesting work with a, a number of different um, CAR-T therapies. But tell us a bit about it. Tell us a bit about the work you're doing there. Sure. So, uh, so Celiad itself is a, is a Belgian-based uh, CAR-T company, as you say, Tom. So CAR-T engineered T-cell therapies. Um, been an explosion of interest over the last really 10 years mm. since, uh, since some of these new ver- CD19 CAR-T in particular was heading towards clinical, uh, or showing clinical activity and moving towards licensing. Uh, and we're, we like to think we're one of the, the next wave of companies that are working on alternative targets first and foremost. Yeah. So we're looking to use a, a cell uh, called a natural killer cell, the, the, the activity of a natural killer cell that can target you know, different tumours, so multiple tumours, and we're exploiting the systems natural killer cells use and expressed as a chimeric antigen receptor in a T cell, so really combining the innate and adaptive immune system. Mm. And that gives us an approach that can target a broad number of cancers. So we've been testing that specific approach for the last two to three years in the clinic in a, in a series of phase one trials across a number of indications, both hematological and solid tumours. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as that, as that uh, asset has really started to reach some val- a level of elevation in the clinic, we're now looking much more at platforms. And so that was an autologous, a personalised therapy. Yeah. Uh, but the company really is now starting to focus on allogeneic cell therapy, where we can generate banks of cells that can be used in a broader way. Mm. So in short, the company has really focused on developing one specific target, uh, which we're looking to take to the next level. And that's, that's in the autologous setting, but we're now developing that in the allo setting, but also a separate platform that can allow us to work with any CAR-T targeting. So yeah. it's, a, it's a broad development-based company, very much focused on clinical development. Yeah. And that's interesting that it started out as an autologous treatment and now is being developed allergenically. And um, yeah, I mean, there are a number of implications of that, but I suppose sometimes they're seen as two quite different approaches. It'd be interesting to understand how it's transferred over and, and what the impact of that has been. So it really comes down to the, the concept. And I agree with that view that they are very different approaches. Mm. Um, the, the, the mechanism of an autologous approach really is based on the idea that we can infuse T cells from the same patient. They're not, at least as far as we can tell, immune reactive, so they're not likely to be eliminated by the patient. 
Mm-hmm. So the mechanism of action can be uh, longer term, could involve you know, longer term persistence, although the evidence for long term persistence in clinical activity is still lacking in the CAR T space. Right. But at least it means there's different ways that those T cells could work uh, within the patient. Whereas in the allogeneic approach, clearly uh, the, 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 the big and first challenge is to avoid the toxicity of using a yeah. third party donor. So that requires technology, and that technology is improving, including the technology we're developing. Uh, and so, but the mechanism of action is different because we know that those cells are likely to be immune rejected within a relatively short period of time as compared to the autologous. So, so there has to be a different thought really process in terms of how these cells are going to work mechanistically, which, which leads to, or it will lead, I think, more to how, how the clinical trials are likely to be designed in different ways as comparing mm. an autologous against another genetic cell therapy. But at the moment, they're actually both quite similar because they're coming from the viewpoint that a T-cell is produced, it's infused into the patient. The patients are, whether autologous or allergenic, tend to receive a a heavy-duty dose of chemotherapy beforehand to ablate their own immune system for a period of time. Uh, And that allows the the transfer T-cells to engraft. So there's some nuts and bolts which are similar at the moment, but I'm sure as the therapies develop, they'll start to diverge more and more. Yeah. And am I right in thinking that the advantages of, of an allogeneic approach are that it can be scaled up more easily and more effectively and then administered to more patients more quickly? Is that... that that's the underlying hypothesis. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's some evidence that's true. Certainly in our, in our initial clinical trial, we reported recently at ASCO in, in 2020, uh, 15 patients treated with uh, a single bank of cells. So we generated those cells from one half of, of a donor apheresis and, and generated and banked those cells. Mm. Whereas we normally use one apheresis taken from each patient to treat that patient. So there is some economy of scale already, even at this very early stage of clinical development. So the, the hypothesis, I think, will be proven out. We, we've got a little way to go to work on the technology and how we can generate suitable right. size banks and, and, and how this can really be controlled from a quality and stability point of view over time. But the underlying attraction of aloe is the fact it's an off-the-shelf approach. Yeah. As soon as the patients are recruited, they can receive their cells straight away rather than having to wait for a period for the, their own cells to be manufactured. Yes. Yeah. Okay. No, it's interesting. And you mentioned that um, you primarily at Celia the development company, so primarily looking at clinical uh, studies, so that, that kind of later stage of development. Um, I'm interested because you joined as, as VP of R&D a few years back and recently moved into the chief scientific officer role. So as chief scientific officer of a clinical development company, tell us a bit about what you focus on and where you spend your time. So, so my role has been very much uh, developing and delivering the scientific stroke clinical direction of the company. Uh, my background, which I'm sure we'll talk about in June, mm-hmm. has been very much at the translational end, the applied end of research. So, so my, my activity primarily is, is focusing on the scientific strategy, but really with a very strong view of clinical development and clinical outputs, which means working very closely with my clinical colleagues within Saliad and, of course, the investigators working with our trials and understanding how the technologies we have can transfer now. Right. So we're not an early stage discovery company. We're not looking for clinical entities that can go into the clinic in, in two, three, four years' time. It's very much about how we can put the, the various entities we have into the clinic really as soon as possible. Yeah. Uh, and so, so that end, the initial receptor we had when the company licensed, the company licensed in this technology from Dartmouth College uh, outside of Boston, that, that entity was already in very early phase clinical trials. So we extended the clinical trials for that entity. 
and we've developed allogeneic technology uh, and, and we're now pushing forward on those but our aim is is to fine-tune that allogeneic technology take it to the next level but ensure that we bring in candidates that have already been tested at least some strong evidence at a clinical level that that it's uh, you know, those particular targets could be exploited uh, in a way that's clinically relevant so we're not working hard we do some discovery but we're not really focused on early stage discovery yeah. it's very much about working with targets that are in place and us developing the platform and pushing through into the clinic to really clinically validate those particular approaches yeah it makes sense and i suppose with cell therapies in general that the the scientific manufacturing and clinical elements sit a lot more closely together don't they than in, than in other types of cell therapies so, so th- cell therapies are all about manufacturing to yeah. be perfectly honest it, it is the big uh, is a big challenge there, there's lots of opportunities and, and technologies that are, that are coming through but a very early stage and to be honest most of the technologies that are in place at the moment uh, have been around for 15 to 20 years mm-hmm. because they're robust and allow the, the clinical trials to be developed. Now, there's new manufacturing technologies, um, bioreactors and such, which are in development and undoubtedly will improve uh, the ability to manufacture these cells over time. But that takes that takes time and effort to get through mm-hmm. uh, to, to to be compliant with good manufacturing process and all the all the requirements for clinical manufacturing through a regulatory standpoint. So, so there tends to be a lag. In the, in the technology yeah. developments and how those feed through into clinical uh, products. And in particular, and so we have our own cell therapy manufacturing, clinical manufacturing unit at Salia. And what happens there is that when you tend to have a technology, you stay with it as long as you can because it's a lot of effort to then really rewrite all the protocols and then validate both mm. internally and externally to be able to use whatever new technology uh, is associated with your manufacturing approach. So we're at the earlier end. We're looking at different approaches and way we can take these into the clinic. But we do tend to work on some basic structured um, uh, protocols and activities which, which have been validated. So it's very much the development angle is about bringing entities through using a, a structure and infrastructure that we have in place already to allow those clinical trials to be developed um, rather than focusing on new technologies, very bright, shiny new technologies that will require a long time of development to get to the stage of clinical validation. Yeah, understood, understood. So it's very much focused on how do we make this work rather than what's a different way we can do this or how do we do something completely completely different to what we've done before? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's really the bridge for clinical development. Mm. Um, It's possible within an academic setting to really ask some some more early stage questions, but actually getting the funding and being able to develop those is the challenge there. In biotech, so we're a small biotech company, and for colleagues in the same place, a biotech lives or dies by its clinical results. Yeah. And so it's very much about ensuring that there's a pipeline of activities and to try and ensure that those those different things we take into the clinic have the, the broadest and greatest possible chance of, of clinical um, success. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So we'll come back to Celiad, I'm sure. Um, but it'd be great to, to talk a bit about your career prior uh, to joining the company. Um, so we always like to go back to the beginning, David. Um, for you... Why science? Why why drug development? Why you know why this career path for, from your point of view? Uh, hard to say. It certainly wasn't an active choice. I would say. Okay. Uh, so back in the time, I, I started 
<laughs> even going back from school. So I was schooled in the, the southeast of Kent, uh, Chatham House Grammar School in Ramsgate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and straight from there, actually, um, I, I was looking, as most do, uh, uh, to look at to move into medicine or such. And I didn't get there. I was really quite unsure what to do. So I actually moved into the family business, which is a butchery business. Right. Four to five years. Unusual career path. But yeah, uh, my father at the time said, rather than sitting around working out what you can do, do this and then decide where you can go. But that was actually yeah. very helpful in terms of understanding you know, how businesses can work and, and dealing with relationships, which is a key factor that really mm-hmm. comes through the whole career. Uh, I then went to do a degree. Uh, I, I, I chose to do a very broad degree. Uh, so Applied Biological Sciences, which at the mm-hmm. time was at Bristol Polytechnic, now the University of the West of England. And the reason for looking at Polytechnic was actually offered the chance of a year out of a sandwich course at the time, which was quite right. unusual back in the day when I was a younger man. Um, and that, that actually had the opportunity of going to the US. So it was a very good degree. I spent a year in North Carolina working at a, a, a university called East Carolina University with a chap called Nels Pedersen working on herpes simplex virus. Mm. And that gave a very broad experience in terms of even at that early stage. Uh, I finished in, in Bristol, looked for PhDs, and had the opportunity to join uh, Professor uh, Roland Wolf at the Biomedical Research Centre in Dundee to work on not on immunology, uh, but on a, a very molecular-based uh, molecular pharmacology project looking at uh, cytochrome P450, which are liver metabolizing enzymes. But in this case, it was really looking at the expression of those enzymes in the brain and potential association with Parkinson's disease. So based, based on some hypotheses that have been generated in the US. Mm. So good experience. Uh, and I got to the end of my PhD uh, at around 1996. And at that point, was obviously keen to look at a postdoctoral career. Mm. Uh, but I'd always had a, a flagging background interest of, of immunology uh, through degree and, and strangely even through my uh, PhD. Uh, and, and by chance. So life is actually primarily by chance. But I, I saw a, a, an opportunity, uh, a postdoctoral position being offered at the University of Bristol. Yeah. With a chap called uh, Robert Hawkins, who was moving to Bristol from Cambridge, uh, to work on something called engineered T-cells, which I thought was fascinating and certainly bridged uh, my experience of expressing hard-to-express proteins, mm. which cytochrome's people physically are very hard-to-express proteins, and combined with an immunology and an oncology interest uh, so I applied and was very lucky to get that position uh, and started the work with Robert. And I spent over 18 years with him after that. So it was, right. a, it was, it was a very long postdoc, um, which started in Bristol for two years or so. Then Robert was recruited to become head of medical oncology at Christie Hospital in Manchester. Yeah. Uh, and so I moved up with him uh, and then really carried on working on cell therapy. So the focus was cell therapies, CAR T cell therapies in particular, but others. Um, the agreement with Robert was... Uh, and this is slightly unusual for an early postdoc career, was to focus on clinical developments. Okay. So we had, we had entities, antibodies that he was working on, in particular targeting uh, CD19, which is now a licensed product, mm-hmm. and another target called CEA. And we basically spent five years going through the regulatory hurdles, the scientific background, to get to the stage of getting these clinical trials up and going, which we'd succeeded in Manchester. Unfortunately, yeah. there was some regulatory delay outside of our... Uh, out of our uh, that we could manage um, due to factors in the outside world, which I won't go into. Yeah. Um, but all of that really gave me <laughs> a very big experience in terms of how to translate entities from the bench. And so the first constructs we used in clinical trial were ones that I generated on the research bench. Okay. And I took them through from that stage with Robert through regulation, through clinical protocol, through delivery into the clinic. 
as well as including achieving funding for all of this uh, through various programs that Robert and I was a co-investigator uh, mm. involved with to generate that. So huge experience, and then focused much more on academic career after that, so balancing the translational research angle and trying to deliver further therapies uh, yeah. within the context of the University of Manchester. So I worked on tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, for instance, which are, which are a, a, a ever-growing uh, business, actually, opportunity at the moment in the U.S., as well as working on some vaccine work and others. Mm-hmm. Uh, I achieved uh, uh, academic independence as a, uh, as a uh, yeah, senior lecturer and then reader in due course. Uh, and got to the stage of uh, 2016, um, where the opportunity to Celia had come along. So during the 18 years, the 18 years I spent basically in Manchester and a few years in Bristol, it was very much focused around delivering and generating very early stage cell therapies. Yeah. In a background where immunology really was a, was an unloved science, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Big focus on, on drug delivery was very much on drugs uh, and not really on the living cells that we have now. Right. Pushing forward some early clinical stage trials, which which really never hit the headlines whatsoever. I mean, in Manchester, we were ahead of, of the big names in the field in the US that have really driven the field on. And so, matter of you know, wrong time, wrong place, I would say. Mm. But that experience is second to none, and the, and the reason why uh, the opportunity to come along to a senior management position in in a in a publicly listed company such as Celia was because of the academic. Um, work that I've done during that period of time, yes. really mainly the clinical delivery of cell therapies uh, from the early stage through to actually getting these into phase one clinical trial. Yeah. So it's an unusual career path. Certainly not, yeah. I think there was a, certainly wasn't a standard uh, three-year postdoc followed by a three-year postdoc. Mm. When I joined Robert, he was very focused on clinical delivery of a therapy and looking back that was that was probably a mistake from a career point of view because my publication output during those four to five years was close to zero. Right. Mainly because I was working on regulatory documents, generated, yeah. investigate a new investigation of drug documentation uh, with Robert, um, all of the scientific work, and even working on committees, uh, for example, with the National Blood Service who were producing the cells and doing work okay. such as proving that a virus doesn't infect plastic, strangely enough, and it, it, it shows that you can't transfer those retroviruses particularly easy. All this non-sexy, non-publishable stuff, but absolutely mm. essential to get a clinical trial up and going. Yeah. So that's, that's, a, that's my pathway through to Celiad, really. Yeah, so there's, there's some interesting things in there. So as you say, it's, it, it was an unusual um, an unusual postdoc, if you like, although it extended beyond that. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, you know, not, I suppose not many people in their postdoc get to work on things that are quite that applied. Um, and, you know, I suppose the focus not being on publications probably, I imagine, had some advantages and some disadvantages, as you've said. Um, and then you also then went to, to sort of pursue some more traditional academic uh, stuff afterwards. So it'd be good to unpack that a little bit. So, yeah. and also actually, the this must have been the very, very early days of, T cell therapies and, and so this is yeah. So this all started uh, 1996 when I joined yeah. in Bristol. So this was very early stage. So the first first really discussed CAR T clinical trial was 2010. Yeah. So we're looking at 14, 15 years ahead. And at the time, um, we were part of a European framework program led by Zeligeshar, who's who's known as the father of, of CAR T cell therapy. He really drove the original idea in the late 1980s. Mm. Uh, so, so we joined the, the, the very small group of researchers working in this field at, at a very early stage. Um, 
so across Europe, there's probably only three to four groups. There was only probably five or six groups within the US. So it's a very, very early stage. And everyone knows each other extremely well. Yeah. Uh, and it was a great time to be working. Uh, the advantage um, for me in that situation was that Robert had uh, program grants. Right. Uh, and program grants that were dedicated to the translational output, very, very strong translational output of this particular cell therapy. Mm -hmm. So it's unusual to walk into programs that are so that have that broad direction now. They, they tend to be much more focused, much more smaller in terms of scope. Whereas at the time, the various programs that we had uh, from what is now Cancer Research UK or Cancer Research Campaign at the time, uh, and yeah. other charities and also European Union were very much about getting this into the clinic. Yeah. So, th so that was an unusual position to walk into as as an early postdoctoral researcher, but it certainly gave a, a, a drive to to develop translational uh, approaches yes. because of that basically five-year funding. Yeah, that makes sense. And so I suppose most scientists want to work on something novel, which you were doing. Um, there are good things about working on novel science and there are, there are challenging things about it. I suppose it must have been interesting to do that in a setup that perhaps isn't as practiced at running clinical trials, for example, as, as doing it in a big pharma company or, or somewhere like mm -hmm. that. But what, what, was, what was good about working on something so new and what was, what was difficult about it? And so the good thing about working on something new is the fact that <laughs> there's not many others who are actually working in the space. So everything right. is new. No matter what you're doing, you, know, you are the leaders. The bad thing, of course, is that <laughs> nobody's experienced the problems that you have. Right. Uh, it was noticeable at big meetings. You know, so, so there was no, no car team meetings. No one had heard of these things. So we would be invited as small groups to side meetings and you know, there would be no audience. You know, I remember giving talks to two or three people. Now you, know, you usually have two or three hundred, even in the smallest meetings, um, and so there just wasn't the depth of expertise. But on the other hand, the very small group of people that were, we, we were quite tight knit and able to really interact quite strongly across the world for those groups. So, so that was good, um, to say the least. Uh, the the clinical uh, delivery was actually um, all, all led by Robert. So Robert was clinician uh, right. and head of medical oncology at Christie Hospital. And so the, the clinical infrastructure and the clinical delivery was all very much down to Robert. So really my role was about delivering the science and ensuring that everything was robust and that, the, that what was needed in terms of the, the there was a, a national ethical body at the time so we could develop the ethics associated with the research, the science underlying it. That was very much my role to help deliver that. Yes. Robert was very much at the clinical end, um, but, but everything has to be presented together. So the, the science strategy has to be based on understanding what, you're, what you need to do in the clinic and, and the limitations. And of course, the clinical design has to be based on the science. So they're very, very entwined. And that's, yeah. that tends to get separated a little bit more nowadays. And I think that doesn't really help in terms of getting the story across. So, so the benefit at the time was that we were a very small group looking to develop clinical trials, had some big aspirations. Um, and it was quite fun doing all the various different things that you probably wouldn't get to do now, to be honest, because they're so segmented. Yeah. yeah, true, true. And you mentioned as well that obviously it had an impact on your publication record and because and you were doing lots of other things. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing it, it, it must have been quite a strong belief in the potential of the, the therapy, the potential of the idea to, to sort of forego that, that bit that traditionally is what academics judge themselves by, right? Well, and, and, it, and it was bad news for me uh, to be 
perfectly honest. Um, so, so when it so so promotion within universities, like everywhere, is based on a peer review committee and such, and the right. publications really, really did weigh against me because delivering delivering a clinical trial, really, that's Robert's success. I, I'm just the also man at that stage. So I, I would I would yeah raise caution to anybody. Mm. PhD minded. If you have an MD, I think the, 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 your focus is very different. But from a PhD perspective, keep the publications going. That's very critical because certainly my, my development route within within uh, university was certainly hampered because of that lack of activity. Right. So so once once we we started driving through the clinical programs, and it was very clear to me that to progress in an academic setting, I had to really focus much more on publication output and developing a, a more standard approach. And that's where my publication, you know, improvement in, uh, in terms of my standing within the university, publications increased, grant funding increased, and then that helped me onto an independent uh, career, which I probably could have achieved five years earlier mm. if I'd taken a more standard route. So I, I think for me, I did, I had taken the hit in terms of that early stage progression because of committing to something which didn't have the readouts that fit into a, a standard, standard format. Yes, but perhaps that allowed the the move to Celiad and and gave you that experience that that backed that up. It's always difficult to tell, isn't it? <laughs> you know. Well, I'd like to say this was all planned, <laughs> but of course it's not. It, it's a matter of when opportunities come along. Yeah. So you did you did then go down this this more traditional career path, and as you said, you were a senior lecturer for a, a number of years, and um, then moved into this reader position and. Um, I suppose I was interested in then that move to Celiad because a lot of people, when they get to that point in their academic career, that's that's them for the rest of their career, um, yeah. and that, that's probably the majority of people. So, it, talk me through that that change and and why you went into industry on the back of it, and and I guess you know the 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 path that you took. It was well. It's certainly a brave thing to do. Uh, bearing in mind, you know, I was, yeah, uh, 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 yeah, I was just fifty. I was around fifty at that stage, right. so I was certainly was certainly not young. Um, uh, basically, the University of Manchester has undergone, like every university, uh, restructuring and alterations, uh, and and this process was about to start again. Uh, mm. I've been through a number already, <laughs> and uh, yeah. uh, 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 so, so I was really considering about where the academic route would take me at that stage, and and. and and thinking about how the outputs and how to uh, align the groups. When um, this opportunity came along, I, so I'd, I'd already actually done the due diligence uh, right. for Celiad for that initial uh, activity. I'd been invited onto the advisory board. Uh, and then the company found themselves in, in real need of someone to lead the research. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they asked. And to me, it seemed like a, just a good opportunity. It's, it's, it, these things don't come along very often. Being you know, directly asked to go into a senior management level in a NASDAQ-listed company doesn't come along too often. Yes. Could have been a big jump, but actually was was not as big a jump as I, as I really okay. expected it to be. Uh, and so, so I went for it. Uh, at the time, I thought, well, this is just an opportunity to go for. Uh, there are other, various other job offers you know, lurking around, but nothing of that sort of level. No, sure. And obviously very relevant to the work that you'd done. Well, so I was aware of due diligence, and so I guess I felt a slight commitment because I had suggested that it was something worth looking at. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but the, the main reason really was the science. Um, yeah. the, the particular target, I think, that Sega works on offers a different way of thinking about CAR T. It's, it's clearly in the sweet spot of research that I've been doing. Uh, and it was the opportunity to focus. So I'd say that the, the thing that's clearly different in the biotech space mm. as compared to academia was that I went from being actively focused on 
grant funding and, and attempting to bring grants into a smaller group. We had a group of around 16 or 17 at the time. So it is very much, very much about focused on, on getting funding for the group and within a certain area. Moving to a company which was completely focused on one thing in particular, and my job was to ensure that the company could deliver that. So that focus um, really, really was very enlightening. I'll be, I'll be honest, because it gave us a chance to, to think. And instead of thinking about how to fund people, it become well, we have to do this because success is really important. Mm-hmm. But it was a change of mindset, um, which actually resonated with me. I enjoyed that very much. Yeah. Uh, and and, and the, the step from academia to biotech, um, actually, as small biotechs have very similar ethos. The science has got to be good. If the science isn't good, then, then you're nowhere. Yes. Um, yeah, and overall, the the structures are, are not so not so different in terms of how the how the company is set up because most R and D departments are full of postdocs, and, and that's exactly what the idea. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I suppose it's as you say. It's the biggest difference is then that that sort of um, alignment of what you're doing, right? And the the so, so it's it's alignment and timelines. So the, 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 the time associated with developing things in biotech is much shorter, but satisfyingly shorter. So when I joined Robert in 1996, we, we started working on, the, on an entity that got into clinical trial around 2007. Yeah, so that's okay. That's 11 years. Uh, in Celian, we, we've launched, I think, four or five different clinical trials just in the four years that I've been here, and we've been running other trials as well. Yes. So just the ability to move things through and to get clinical testing, which is which is where an entity works, yes or no, it, preclinically, it's important to have that basis. Yeah. But to treat patients uh, is critical. And so the ability to do that in a company, I think, is second to none. And certainly as compared to the, the, some of the, the, the issues in getting funding and being able to deliver a clinical trial within the academic setting. Yeah. So I found that thoroughly refreshing. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned as well, there are a number of similarities between an academic department and a, a small biotech company in terms of setup and, and things like that. I, if people are sat in academia and thinking about a move and, and thinking about that moving to industry, I think sometimes it can be difficult to judge what it's like and, and why, how it's going to be different. <laughs> From your point of view, what are the things that those people should bear in mind when they're considering that move? <laughs> Uh, so, so I'll put my hand up and say, of course, that Celiad is a biotech of around 100 or so people. Right. So, so it's it's a small company as compared mm-hmm. to you know the, the the enormous farmer who will be set up slightly differently. So it really depends on what you're after, I would say. So there is uh, so using Celiad as an example and other biotechs of our size, there's flexibility. You know, the idea is to really try and translate research into something that's going to be clinically directed. Um, so, so. Yeah, if you're keen to work on a rapidly translating area where the research is not going to be open for everything, but looking to have interesting, clinically relevant readouts uh, and the ability to work around that, uh, but also accept the fact that there are challenging times, the timelines. So if we want to have an experiment, we want to have it sooner rather than later, because if we want to push it into clinic, which will make the company a success, it's about urgency, not panic, but having urgency to the experiments, which you actually can't do generally in academia because there's just right. not the funding to do it. So so if you're sitting at academic bench and, and really keen to be involved with uh, the, the drug development that works at a faster space, pace 
and you can get the readouts within a relatively short period of time, so a matter of a few years, potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, then that, then uh, biotech is certainly the place to be. Um, to work at the later stage, so licensed drugs and later stage drugs, uh, I mean, that, that carries a hu- another high level of satisfaction, certainly for the individuals that have a very, for licensing uh, uh, and a more uh, structured approach in terms of drug development than pharma, there, there's no better place to be. Uh, those right. guys are, are, are wizards uh, are taking uh, drugs through the commercial sector. So from an academic perspective, um, it's great to have academic freedom, although academic freedom is actually limited by the funding that you have. So True. it's questionable <laughs> what academic freedom really is. Uh, the direction and the pace, the urgency, but the complete science focus and patient-centered focus of biotech. Yeah. I don't think that's quite accept- is understood. But the, the focus on delivering something that's, that's, that delivers a therapy for patients. Without that, then, then, then biotechs will never survive. So it's mm. really a patient-focused approach. Um, it, it is it's key and that was the attraction for me moving from a, a working at a hospital which is completely cancer focused into a company that's oncology focused and looking to develop therapies yes yeah makes sense and thinking about it from a skills point of view i mean clearly the job that you do now is very different from the job that you did back at the mm-hmm. start of your time um in in cartoon yeah. therapy um you know, you're, you're now part of the executive team of the company. You're involved in in leading a group of people, and but also leading the organisation as a whole. Um, so, over that time, I guess not just at Sadiad, but but prior to that, you, you will have had to, I'm sure, keep yourself up to date on the science and keep learning the technical aspects of the role. But what are the other important things? Do you think that you've had to develop the other important skills? I think communication yeah. is important. Uh, um, so being able to discuss internally very fine detailed science, but then be able to uh, an analyst at a much broader level and be able to put the, the scientific context, both within the science field, but within the corporate field around mm. what we're doing. So that's one of my key roles as a CSO is to explain why Celiad is doing what it's doing. Uh, but in context of, of science and in corporate world. Uh, so that, that level of communication, I think, is really important, uh, being able to stand and, and, and give talks and such. All the standard scientific training is, is very important. Uh, writing, writing. so all, all forms of communication, very critical in terms mm. of clarity and able to really um, get across points. In particular, so, I mean, the example would be, for instance, in uh, biotech where, the, uh, the biotech is managed by a board of directors who, who, who are not as scientifically savvy for right. the most part as, as many members of the company. So it's about in, ensuring that the board of directors and helping them understand the, the views of the executive team and the management team. And so the board of directors can make their own call as well uh, with full knowledge as to where the company should be going. Mm. So communication up, communication down, understanding and keeping track of the science um, being able to talk with peers, you know, understanding how how other companies and clinicians and colleagues are working in the space. Yes. And um, so for me, it's it's about communication, and the second thing is about relationships. That everything is dependent upon good relationships. And yeah, yeah, yeah. personality plays a, a fairly large part, obviously. Okay. And of course, everybody has their own personalities. Yeah. Um, but but ensuring consistency in terms of your your relationship. And at whatever end of the spectrum, I think is important so that people can have a, a 
confidence so that when they when they interact with you, they can be uh, clear and understand where you're coming from and how how you're coming and, and how those relationships would be managed. Yes, and I suppose in many ways those two things are, are very intertwined, right? Communication and relationships, and and you mentioned the consistency there as well. Um, so that's so that's particularly important in the outside world. Um, yeah. So I like to think I've been consistent, but <laughs> we'll find out in due course. <laughs> uh, but you know, speaking to investors, for instance, who have been with the company for a long period of time, they've seen the story evolve. But it is really important to to ensure that you know, we're not overpromising, that we're delivering on what we what the company can really uh, deliver within a realistic context, and that people come along and they, they join us for the story because we're we're all here for the same thing, really, which is. Yeah. To, success in, in terms of a therapy if yeah. a therapy is a, a success then everyone will benefit absolutely and this this may well um form part of the answer to the next question and and we may have talked about some of this already but in terms of i suppose I suppose the things you've learned from a career point of view or the, the advice that you would give from a career point of view to people who are earlier in their career mm. what are the key things do you think what are the things that you've picked up along the way the key thing to bear in mind is that there's there's always more options okay. than you possibly think. It's very easy to be stuck in a position and think that there's very few doors open. Uh, it's important to take a step back. I mean, I'm, I'm a prime example. So I was a long-term academic, mm-hmm. uh, not really, not to be honest, looking to move away from academia, but an opportunity came. The option was there. I thought, okay, uh, let's take the opportunity and go for it. So I, I didn't really think of that op- that particular option was available. I wasn't actively looking for it, but then these come along. And I think no matter where you are in your career, early or late stage, we tend to get quite focused and thinking there's only one way forward. So as a, as a postdoctoral student, the only way forward is to do a postdoc, for instance. Now, there's, there's pros and cons to that. There may be some advantages, but there's, there's also disadvantages. So it's important to realize that there's options all the way along the whole course, I would say. And that doesn't matter where you are, what stage of your career. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so looking to the future, we've talked a little bit about Celiad and where it's at currently and, and the work that you're doing right now. What's next? What's next for the business? What's next for you? Where, where is the business heading? Good question. I wish my crystal ball was working well because <laughs> I would certainly invest in that. Um, I, I, I'm a believer in cell therapies, of course. I work for a yeah. cell therapy company. And, and I think there's, there's enough interest in the field to, to say that things are, are expanding certainly and the important thing is there's clinical activity so so uh, there, there's two licensed products okay and they're, they're autologous products they're hard to deliver and they're, they're run by pharma but those guys are really trailblazing because they've taken a therapy which 10 years ago very few people would think could be licensed products and these are mm-hmm. not licensed products now, for me, that sets the scene to go forward. And, and I certainly, of course, hope that Celiad is going to be one of the, one of the main players, along with others in the field, yes. uh, about developing uh, and delivering really effective cell therapies beyond the, the really, relatively limited number of indications they're active at the moment in oncology. So solid tumors, we're, we're very focused on, solid, on dealing with solid tumors. Mm-hmm. Uh, once, once we can actually crack uh, that indication to start to get some really significant clinical responses, uh, then I think it, it really, really sets the field alight. Yeah. Um, but also beyond that, um, so, so this, this form of engineered cell therapy, I think, has, has application in autoimmunity and infectious disease. So I'd like to think that this is just very, very early stage, and it's the start of a very exciting time in terms of the, the therapeutic area that we're in. It's certainly 
established, um, I think it's established now, it is understood that there is a paradigm that's immune therapy and then right. you need cell therapy sits within that area. Uh, and certainly 20 years ago, that wasn't the case whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, 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 it's an exciting time to be in the field yeah. uh, and to be looking for the future. Um, the, the, the points we discussed earlier around manufacturing and such, these are technical questions. There's a lot of excitement, a lot of exciting activity and potential that's in that area. But beyond that, the basic science is going to lead us. Yeah. This, I'm sure there's going to be some very exciting developments that will come through that will drive what you do by others in the field as well. So I see it as, I see this as, as a field of really great potential. Mm. Uh, and I, I hope that we're going to be a, a major part of that development. Absolutely. And it's an interesting point you made because a lot of the focus is currently on cancer, not just within Celiad, right, but, but in every company. Yeah. Um, and there are, there are various commercial and, and, um, and medical reasons for that. Um, but as you say, you know, this is, this is proving the concept in a lot of ways as well, isn't it, to then go out and, and apply this technology to other areas. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and there are, uh, there are several, uh, certain companies now that are starting to try and look yes. at CAR-T technology in particular uh, in, in autoimmunity and in uh, infectious disease. And it seems an obvious way to go. I mean, T cells in particular and other immune cells, all of which are being looked at as potential therapies play important roles. We, mm. we, we have evolved to have a, a very potent, adaptive uh, and innate immune system. And so exploiting those cells as, as platforms to yes. those therapies it, it, it is attractive uh, and exciting as well, I'd say. So I think it, it, we're very early. I think the, I, I guess one of the last points really is the fact that the field is perceived to be more advanced really than it is. Okay. Um, this, this is a very, very early stage too. I think the potential of cell therapy is enormous. Mm. But we're only just at the start. So with time, I think this really has the, the potential to be you know, very groundbreaking in terms of the, the potential that could be delivered out. Yeah, I suppose it is easy to forget that, right? Because of the amount of activity that's happening in the space. But everybody is at a very similar stage. As you say, there's a couple of a couple of forerunners that are that are getting a bit further down the line, but it, it's still you know, it's still early days, isn't it? Well, pre two thousand and ten, hardly anybody could mm. have told you what a, a car T was. In fact, car the, the name car T only initiated around about two thousand and nine. Yeah. Before that they were initially called T bodies. Right, okay. immune receptors. Yes. So if you do a literature check, actually you won't find literature going back beyond about 2009 because the term CAR came along much, but it was, was quite recent. I see. So that, that even shows how embryonic really the field is. Mm, absolutely. Well, we wish you the best of luck with, with everything you're doing there. Um, thank you, Tom. Thank you very much for your time, David. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us on Careers in Discovery and don't forget to subscribe for more insight into the world of drug discovery and R&D. Do take a look at our sponsors, Singular Talent, and their mission to make hiring better for companies and individuals in drug discovery and R&D. You can find them at www.singulartalent.io. See you next time.